Hello and welcome to the Regen Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear everything about regenerative agriculture. Regen Agri is an initiative supporting farms, agribusinesses and the supply chain in their transition to regenerative approaches. We do this globally with the aim of securing the health of the land and the wealth of those who live on it. For more information about our initiative and to find out about how we can help you with your regenerative journey, visit regenagri.org. I'm your host, Rose Riley, and once again, I'm excited to bring you the latest developments on the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. For this episode, we're talking about integrating livestock into arable systems. Livestock can play a key role in building soil organic carbon and increasing biodiversity, but it can be daunting to introduce animals into an arable operation. So I'm pleased to be joined by Sophie Alexander from Hemsworth Farm in Dorset in the south of England. She took over the farm in 2011 when it was an entirely arable operation. Sophie knew the fertility of the soil needed to be improved, so took the brave step to introduce livestock uh, to the land for the first time. Unlike many mixed farms, which have livestock and arable in separate areas, Hemsworth has adopted a fully integrated system. Alongside farming, Sophie also chairs some of the committees for the Land and Country Business Association. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Rose. So I'd really like to start with hearing about Hemsworth Farm, the background of the farm and um, what what it was like when you took over there. So I've just completed my 11th harvest at Hemsworth. I took it over in 2011. It had been a tenanted farm for really hundreds of years. It belonged to my mother. And when I took it on, it had been almost exclusively an arable farm, I think um, some cattle, and certainly at one stage, maybe a generation ago, a lot of sheep had been um, on the farm. But I took it on when it had been, you know, a hard use, predominantly arable farm. And it was just two years into an organic conversion, about half the farm had been converted in 2009. And, you know, it's now 1200 acres and the whole farm is now certified organic. And um, what was your reason for, when you took it over, for deciding to introduce livestock? As an organic system. So when I took it on, I was not convinced that it would remain organic. I was very open-minded. I didn't know which would be most suitable for the farm. And we had three years where we could benchmark the conventional farming against the newly converted um, cereals. And after three years, it became clear that we didn't always make the biggest gross some on the organic part of the farm, but our margins were appreciably better. And I liked that resilience and financial security. And by then, after three years, I was completely gripped by organic farming. I was very pleased that the financial performance echoed where I really thought I wanted to, you know, the type of farming I wanted to pursue. To answer your question more concisely, That's the background. And with an organic farm, particularly here, where on light soils, they're chalky soils, it's more or less downland, where on the very edge of the Cranbourne Chase. So light soils, they need fertility. And they're only rare farms, I think, that can be organic as well as stockless. 
So it's a combination of needing the fertility from um, the cattle, but also because we grow fertility building lays 50% of the time, therefore roughly 50% of the farm is in a clover mix of grasses, you need livestock to give you a return on that fertility building part of the rotation. Yeah. And so how did you go about um, introducing the livestock? What was the, the first thing that you did? The first thing that I did, it was a you know, happy coincidence of timing. Another local organic dairy farmer was looking for extra organic ground to raise his young stock on. So the first venture into bringing livestock onto the farm was with a grazing license and they brought at the height of the growing season 500 young stock here so that afforded me to start investing in the infrastructure for livestock I didn't at the time know that I would end up with our own herd but the grazing license meant that I could invest in fencing the water supply put in more troughs and you know, generally bring the infrastructure of the farm up to standard. And that was a very um, happy and, for me, relatively easy arrangement. Why would you change that? You know, I didn't have um, the responsibility every day of looking after the cattle. I knew what check I would get at the end of the year. And I really liked the farmer we did it with, but he could have at any time decided he didn't need my ground to raise his livestock on, his young stock on, which would have really left me in the lurch. It was partly the decision not to be wholly dependent on somebody else, on somebody else's business. And also it's just that when you have your own livestock, you can manage them in a way that is going to enhance the whole system. So it will benefit my crops as well. So it's not to say that having a grazier, they don't also want you to improve your farm, but everyone's priorities are slightly different and perhaps they grazed it harder than I do. But the other thing is that by having my own stock I can plant very diverse and different type of grasses and legumes when you're providing for somebody else who's paying a fixed sum on a certain acreage every year uh, you can't be as flexible so you really can only grow what you know works and what they want and having our own has meant I've diversified into growing um, herbal lays mostly for the stock which is great for the ground and therefore the subsequent cereals and what type of livestock did you bring in when you brought in your own herd then well the most sort of usual breed combination would probably be frisian crossed with jersey for an extensive grazing system that has been the favored cross very much influenced by New Zealand systems and I looked at that but there were certain things that seemed unhelpful like the size of the subsequent calves they're small because they're crossed with jersey 
and the market, the meat market, finds it very hard to process small carbs. They want you to have more viable beef-like um, offspring. So that combined with wanting to start with a very high health herd, we have endemic diseases in this country, IBR, BVD, Yonis, obviously, you know, TB, anyone can catch. But I went to Sweden, first of all, to look at something called a Procross. I, with um, the people I'm in business with, I, we went to look at a lot of farms in the UK. People are so generous with their time and expertise and knowledge. And it was a fascinating to be able to go and see so many different farms. And so Procross was highlighted as an animal that might be really suitable. But when we got to Sweden, we felt they were too heavy to be outdoors all year round. So, you right. know, all our cattle were outwintered and found a breed there. It's a hybrid cross called a Viking Red. So it's a Scandinavian um, cross and it is bred for high health traits. And they don't have IBR, Yonis, BVD. In Sweden, we like them. They're a sort of medium-sized cow. They have good foot health. That's what we went for in the end. And so aside from the actual breed of um, of cow that was suitable for you, what was it about having a dairy herd as opposed to any other type of, of grazing animal that appealed? The decision to start our own herd coincided with the realisation that BPS was going to go. And I find it interesting because BPS, if it was still being paid at the same rate for the foreseeable future, I might not have been as enterprising because I might not have made such a big investment into a new enterprise, part of which is not only just to improve soil health, but also to provide another income stream. So BPS, for, for our listeners who might be outside of the UK and not familiar, do you want to just give a little, uh, a quick explanation of, yes, um, of the base payment system? Um, single farm payment that has been, was paid by the EU when we were part of the European Union. And post Brexit, our UK government took a decision to phase out the single farm payment as we know it. So they have made the decision to put money into incentivizing more nature-friendly payment for public goods policy. But nonetheless, our BPS, our single farm payment, will have gone. It is being reduced by percentage over seven years. On 1,200 acres, that was quite considerable sum of money to lose over a period of time. I could have diversified into holiday lets, barn conversions, um, storage, a number of different things which people have been incredibly imaginative and enterprising but I made the decision that my diversification would be more farming not going into businesses that I don't that I'm not as interested in frankly you know yep. so I have to spend my time doing um, holiday yeah. let so my diversification is another stream of farming. 
Thank you. So going back to a point you made earlier, Sophie, um, you mentioned that having the grazing license from the other farmer gave you an income stream which allowed you to make the changes to the infrastructure that you have on farm to actually accommodate the livestock. I'd be really interested to hear what the practical changes were that you had to make around the farm and how they've impacted your arable operation. When we had a grazier here, obviously he was only grazing young, young stock which is very different to grazing milking cows, mature milking cows. The farm, when I took it on, had almost no fencing to speak of. It didn't even have perimeter fencing on roads and things. So having the grazier for six years meant I didn't just have to launch into doing it all at once. I could do it progressively as the fields that came out of cereals went into the fertility building lays. So the rotation of integrating the grazing after the arable into the same fields started even with him. It's not something that I've just introduced since the dairy herd starting here. It meant when he was here, we weren't doing such strict rotational grazing. His herds people, his stockmen don't live on the farm. So it wasn't practical for them to move the cows twice a day, which is what we do, which is another of the benefits of having our own herd here is that we can precision graze more easily. And that means that I have had to increase the investment in fencing because there's more interfield fencing. Some of it's very temporary. Yep. The herds people here spend a lot of time moving fences, mm-hmm. which is labor intensive and time consuming. I wish there was a way of doing it more kind of time efficiently. At the moment, there isn't, you know, rock on more collar systems, fencing, mm, GPS collars, yeah. All that kind of thing that, you know, you can direct where the herd go. But the benefits of being able to move them on a really prescriptive basis, you know, the herd manager's brilliant at assessing the grass growth at any one time and the requirements of the cows. So they're pretty much moved twice a day throughout the year, even in the dry period. And that is very good for the ground, for the grass growth, um, the trampling of herbage to improve carbon in the soil, etc. And in addition to the the, the specific challenge around fencing, what other challenges have you found there are in in terms of creating a fully integrated system? And what sources of information did you use as you've been working it out that might be useful to others considering it? Luckily, there are always those that have gone before. And uh, my partner in the business has a herd, a dairy herd on another farm where they have integrated them into the arable rotation. So his knowledge and expertise is has been really very valuable. The benefits are probably more for the cereals than they are for the animals, because One of the downsides is that the cattle build up the nutrient value of a field while they're grazing it. 
um, with the fertility be also being built by the legumes. And then I say, right, you've had, you know, four or five years there. Um, we're going to take it back to grow some wheat now. And then with the three years of cereals, inevitably, the subsequent lay is not as well established, hasn't got such a good nutrient base. So the cows are permanently having to build it up again for the cereals. So that's a challenge for the herd manager. A lot of dairymen would, you know, say, oh, you know, it's not fair. <laughs> We're just building it up and you're depleting yeah. it again. That makes it sound terribly black and white. I mean, we put cover crops in between the cereals and things. So I hope what we will find over time is it's two steps forwards and only one step back and there will be an incremental improvement yeah. over time for the animals it's great they have they have clean ground they're not living year in year out on the same field so from a pest point of view internal burden of worms and so on it, it can really help and um, what sort of benefits are you seeing for the crops it's early to say, Rose, this is our second lactation. So I have only had these cattle in the quantities grazing on a system that we feel really enhances soil health over time for two years. Right. <laughs> so what we took out in the spring out of a herbal lay grew again it was a new experiment so it's all you know there's never one year that's the same we planted wheat with beans so what's driving the system now is the dairy herd because the most important thing is the health of the livestock and they're incredibly good barometers of soil health they tell you when a field isn't providing what they need and so they are a driver to also improving the indices and doing more for the health and nutrient value of the soils because what i found previously is that organic cereals are actually very resilient and they produce a uh, consistent yield as long as you've done the fertility building lays and you're not kind of exhausting them they're pretty consistent so what I say we've done differently this year is we haven't just grown wheat we've combined it with beans and what's happened there is that we've got a bean crop as a protein crop for the cows and the beans have improved the protein in the wheat so we now have a convincing milling wheat as opposed to you know you can imagine on our light soils we didn't always make milling quality it might just be the year you know ask me in five years time if we've consistently achieved that but yeah, um, it's just things like in this drought eight years ago nine years ago we would have had crevasses in our fields you know huge cracks this is really chalky soil with just 40 centimetres of sort of loamy topsoil. And we would definitely have had cracked fields. And I haven't seen that anywhere this year, even in the cereal fields. That's amazing. So, you know, I think that's encouraging. I, you know, it's indicative of something. We haven't had um, the scientists out to have a look. Also, the water 
when it does rain, I think is retained in the soil. We used to get, we've got, you know, springs and things on the farm, you know, we're very lucky to have that, but we definitely used to have flooded fields and standing water over winter. And, you know, even when the grazier was here, we could see a huge improvement in that. So it's that soil health, but it's also having such a diverse range of rooting plants and more of the farm in grazing rather than just cereals. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make some really important points in there about the benefits of a regenerative system in the current um, changing climate, because we've seen you know, huge amounts of drought um, happening across Europe and, and other parts of the world this summer, followed now by significant downpours of rain. And so to hear that your land is already has increased resilience to those weather extremes is, is hugely encouraging. And the fact that you would attribute that to the fact that you are doing this integrated approach with the livestock is is so encouraging to see a real life example of, of the theory that regenerative can improve, increase um, climate resilience. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a, a balancing act. Obviously having our cattle out over winter, not every farm could do that. It's only because we do have light soils, free draining uh, with a bedrock of chalk that we can do that. And, you know, it doesn't always look pretty everywhere in the winter. There are, at the end of last winter, there were some corners of fields where I thought, oh dear, what are we gonna do here? I'm gonna have to overseed it and things. But it's amazing how if you just let, you know, the spring roll for a few weeks, what comes back and what heals. So I don't wanna make out that it's all totally perfect and no mistakes are made it it definitely takes time and the challenge is that dairy cows need to have a really good diet to produce in order to stay healthy and it's a balancing act between restoring the fertility of the soil with the cows but also providing the cows with enough really good rich you know, protein-rich grazing. Yeah. And it all is a sort of balancing act in tandem. And I think um, definitely the herb manager would say there's a lot of room for improvement for the grazing. Are you seeing any other benefit in terms of the natural capital that you're producing on the farm? For example, you mentioned briefly about sequestering carbon down to the soil or biodiversity, usage of water on the farm, things like that? I think so, yes. The We started biodiversity assessment study with the Dorset Wildlife Trust. So we're now in the fourth year. I wanted to get a baseline and it's fascinating having an experienced, knowledgeable ecologist come onto the farm on a regular basis and assess what's there. That's been really encouraging. Obviously, he's not here 24-7, but what he does identify is the diversity of species on the farm, which he says is unusually good. Okay. What's hard to assess is the abundance. Yeah. So we've got a huge range of you know, great invertebrates and birds and so on but it's hard for him to assess the abundance so it's an on it's ongoing work 
and it's other things like we have margins around every field four or six meter margins so what we haven't really been able to gauge is how the cattle have changed the diversity of the farm we know the diversity of the farm is is pretty good and we want to do more of that we we've applied for one of the innovation grants to try and monitor that, that more closely and are you monitoring any of the other environmental kind, kind of factors on the farm the the actual health of the soil itself or carbon sequestration yes we are definitely uh so we've done a lot of soil analysis in the last 11 years i think the problem has been it's taken me a very long time to settle with any one system i've been yep. a kind of tempted to go and try that or that and also we've been in several trial studies so inevitably you end up using different laboratories for different trials and so on it's added hugely to uh, what I've learned, but it's quite hard to then say categorically you've got a trend. Yeah. You know, all our soil organic matter used to be assessed through loss of ignition. Now it's assessed through DUMAS, which generally lowers your score. But yes, I, I really, I think it is definitely has been demonstrated that our organic matter is improving it's perhaps something that happens quickly to start with and then to go any further takes a lot longer I, I don't think you can just decide in a couple of years oh yeah you know that's a really good trend and it does is determined by you know weather so many different things so I'm really interested in the soil biology as well of course, the more biology you have, the more quickly they get through the organic matter. So, yeah, there's so many variables and things going on. So I think it's a kind of health and abundance rather than any one metric. You know, we are obsessed by carbon, perhaps, you know, rightly so. But it is just one facet of an infinitely bigger picture. What One of the soil scientists that came... He describes it as an ecological engine. And I think that's what I'm really wanting to drive and improve. And the livestock are a vital component to driving the ecological engine. Yeah, absolutely. I like that description, ecological engine. It's, um, it seems quite apt for thinking about uh, all the complexities that go into a farming system. Them. So I'm interested to know if you feel that the benefits that you are getting from having an integrated system outweigh the logistical challenges of actually managing livestock and arable in tandem. I really enjoy having the livestock. I think you asked me, one of your questions I know coming up is going to be, what one thing would you you know? suggest advice would you give to someone looking to do this it already seems relevant to say it now I think to introduce livestock you have to really love livestock because you know they are 24 7 you can't just say oh I won't bother to feed you today now I'm off somewhere. 
um, no. and they and they set up challenges. But I suppose I have had to do. If you're talking infrastructure, I probably had to put in more tracks than I would have otherwise. You know, if I just had them concentrated on a particular area of the farm, the journey to and from the parlour wouldn't be as long. I think I'm lucky in that this farm is sort of the optimum size. If it was any bigger, that the cattle wouldn't be able to get to the far-flung areas of the farm and walk back for, mm -hmm. for milking. So what so distance is that that they walk? They can walk up to two kilometres a day. So foot and, you know, limb health is really important. The theory is, the model is, was, that we only milked once a day. And predominantly that is correct. This spring, the second lactation cows were producing so much milk that it seemed, well, both financially advantageous, but also as a welfare thing, they really needed to be milked twice a day. Right. So we did that, but now with the drought and there not being as much grazing, they're having to be fed forage, we, we've gone back to once a day. and. You know, it's fantastic to see how adaptable they've been. So the system is driven by their capacity with, you know, they've got to produce milk. This has got to be, you know, financially viable, but their condition and health is what really drives the decisions and the system. Do you find that having the mixture of an integrated system and the, and the diversity of, of produce is adding financial resilience to, to the farm? I'd like to think so. I think having more than one income stream is a form of resilience. You're not dependent either on milk prices or the health of your herd. You know, there are many adversities that can compromise the health of your herd, you know, TB for one. And equally, I couldn't produce good crops for human consumption with specific project contracts unless I was looking after the health of the farm by having livestock. So the dairy decision was because it could have just been beef. In a sense, that would have been less of a capital investment and perhaps not as complex on a daily basis. But I felt that dairy had the potential to be more cash generative. So as an arable farmer, you maybe don't see a return on the initial investment of establishing a crop for you know, 18 months, a year. Whereas with cattle, you have got cash coming in while you're waiting for your crops to either grow or sell and beef is the same problem you're waiting for the animals to mature and you're feeding them when you don't know necessarily I mean it depends on your setup and your contract you don't necessarily know what you're going to sell them for you know the same with crops you can be putting them in the ground and giving them all the nutrients that they require but you don't necessarily know the end price of what you're getting. So they just seem complementary, really. And so what's next for, for the farm? Is there going to be further diversification or? If I had the energy, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, 
it would be great to develop a brand of biscuits or cheese or both garlic I mean you know anything and I think you know it it's fantastic to watch the innovation and creativity of a lot of people that do that I think creating a brand make creating a brand probably makes farming look pretty straightforward um so not yet I think you know the dairy herd needs to be humming and you know the whole ecological engine humming before I can divert attention even have the hours in the day the thing is every time you start a new enterprise unless you can do it all yourself you've got to be able to afford someone else's salary and to look after them so not not in the present financial climate (laughs) I'm not about to fair enough anything else but yeah in a in an ideal world of course one wants to have a big team of people and the place humming well, I really look forward to, to keeping an eye on the farm and seeing how it develops over the next sort of five years or so with the, the herd really settling in and that soil health building up and up. It'll be wonderful to watch. Thank you very much, Rose. I've really enjoyed talking about it to you and, you know, I'll let you know. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Region Agri podcast. To learn more about what we've talked about in this episode, please find the links in the show notes. If you would like to know more about how the Region Agri initiative can help you on your regenerative journey from advisory services, monitoring of on-farm data and regenerative certification through to carbon verification, please visit regionagri.org. There you can also check out our case studies and articles and gain access to our Region Agri digital hub, Free Insight. Alternatively, follow us on Twitter at regionangry underscore org or search Region Agri on LinkedIn.